ethnographic approach, sometimes referred to as watching life unfold, is not always as simple as it sounds. Boundaries, access and trust are constantly being negotiated in what Andrew Jefferson describes as a dance between researcher and prison gatekeeper. So what can this method tell us about how torture prevention training is received in reality? My name is Omar Phoenix Khan and this is Justice Focus. Andrew M. Jefferson is a senior researcher at Dignity, the Danish Institute Against Torture. For the past two decades, he has been studying and writing about prisons and prison reform processes in the global south, with a focus on countries undergoing transition. He aims to contribute to social scientific understandings of the conditions under which torture and inhumane treatment thrive, with a view, in the end, to transforming such conditions and making the world a safer place for all. Andrew, Welcome to Justice Focus today. Yeah, thanks very much. It's a, a real privilege to be here. No, great, thank you. I'm I'm uh, very glad that you're taking the time, and I know it's a bank holiday where you are, so thank you doubly for that. Um, I have got a lot of questions that I want to ask you about all kinds of things. Um, there's lots of areas of the work that particularly um, excite me f- for my work, but I think a lot of people um, even that don't work in the area will find it interesting. And... Just to let people know right at the top, you know, you've, I know you've worked in many different communities, very different contexts, everything from uh, therapeutic communities in Grendon, but also police lockups in Sierra Leone, prisons in Nigeria, in Myanmar, in Tunisia, Kosovo, Philippines, many different contexts. So I want to ask you about many of those things there. But I know when we've spoken before, you've, you've mentioned, you know, we work in quite a, a weird and demanding kind of world in the criminology criminal justice world what what got you into this in the first place and why would you why do you think it's a weird and demanding world <laughs> yeah it's uh, definitely a weird and demanding world and two decades yeah. of it some, sometimes leave me a bit tired actually yeah but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but it's, I mean, it's a long story to why, why did i get into prisons research i mean first of all it's, it's not for everybody prisons research mm. it is a bit of a niche and um I mean, I need to go all the way back, I think. My, my first encounter with a, a site of confinement was, was maybe during a, a Christian mission in my early teenage years. Um, mm. Maybe if I can backtrack even further. I mm. actually, I was brought up in a relatively sheltered religious uh, home. Um, and occasionally that meant I would go, for example, to my grandparents' town and participate in missions. And that would throw me into sort of running youth groups for people of a very different sort of background to myself. And sometimes we'd mm. become friends. And there was this one kid I knew, John, and he, um, the, the, the following time I went back to the town to my grandparents, I asked around about where he was, and they said he was in, in a kind of a children's home. I thought, oh, mm. that's really weird. Uh, my mate John, you know, I was probably about 14 or something. But apparently he'd been put in this children's home because he'd been beating up his mother, which also surprised me. But then I, oh. I went to visit him in this place, uh, and he talked to me about his key worker. And that was my first very young encounter with sort of social service provision for troubled youth, I guess, mm. uh, looking back. But of course at that time... And this was in Denmark? No, this was in, in England. Right. 
So at that time, I had absolutely no idea that I would end up being a, a prison scholar and working at a place like the Danish Institute Against mm. Torture. But there's there's mm. a much longer narrative linking that particular episode with uh, with becoming a prison researcher. Maybe I should also say a little bit more about this religious upbringing because that also kind of plays plays a role in the in the whole story. Yeah, definitely. Um, please. It it was it was quite sheltered. And at the same time, it exposed me, as I said, to sort of people with very different backgrounds to myself. Um, mm. It also was quite puritanical, in a sense, and quite dogmatic. Okay. But there are some things that I take with me into my sort of contemporary work life that, that very much come from, from that background. For example, the values of compassion and solidarity, um, mm. which don't necessarily have to have a religious source, of course, but they are, in a sense, faith commitments that I have, uh, I have kept. Um, mm. it, it was also a strange kind of church setup, um, where, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time doing Bible studies. Uh, I was exposed to the idea of interpreting texts in search of truth from a very young age. Uh, mm. And whilst I came to sort of resist dogma and definitive claims to, to authority, I, I mm. really learned to wrestle with texts and try to make sense of them. I mean, hermeneutics has a sort of background in, in biblical scholarship, so it's maybe not so surprising. But but mm. all that also led me to kind of think a little bit against the grain. That's maybe we, something we, can, we yeah. can come back to a little bit. But and questioning yeah, established questions, 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 thoughts and things. Yeah. And sort of yeah. fighting against what I was originally mm. taught was sort of, eternal truth and trying to trying to work out my my own way i also wrote stuff from a very young age you know sort of little pamphlets and leaflets often moralizing leaflets about how we should be better people but it was oh, also yeah? it was, who was your audience at that point uh, you know non-believers people yeah needed to be converted i suppose i uh, see yeah rather different audience to that that i yeah hope to speak to today but but some of the, yeah. the things that I was fighting against there are, are, are reasons why I sort of uh, I'm a little bit opposed to sort of dogmatic positions. If anyone takes a mm. sort of dogmatic position on anything, I'm prone to want to say, ah, come on. Hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. So, so that's not quite an answer to your question, which was no. But so far, it seems like you've turned from biblical scholar to devil's advocate. Yeah, that could be true. That's a nice way to put yeah. it, actually. <laughs> it also this is jumping a little bit, but it's it's yeah. also about when I went to Africa for the first time. It was Nigeria of all places, mm-hmm. um, and started uh, visiting prisons and talking to prison staff about their lives and getting to know them. Mm. I, I it slowly dawned on me that my task was not so much to point the finger at them and criticize them, as a lot of human rights discourse does, it it felt much more appropriate to sort of point the finger back at either myself or sort of my home community Mm. uh, to use what I was discovering uh, by talking to these people to sort of analyze and sometimes problematize the kind of standard intervention models that uh, Mm. are adopted. So I felt much more at home being kind of self-critical and recognizing my own complicity in, in, in some of these perhaps problematic intervention forms. Um, 
so so I, I shifted my mindset from being sort of critical and judgmental of those who I was studying to being critical and judgmental in the early days at least of, of myself and sometimes my my colleagues but again there was mm. there was a long gap between getting to Nigeria and growing up in a sheltered religious home maybe I should touch a little yeah. bit on that because that also was extremely formative and is still something that I, I draw on in my work today shall I do that yeah, please do, yeah. So I studied psychology at Brunel University, um, which at that time ran four-year thin sandwich courses with work placements. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first work placement was in a psychiatric institution, preparing people for life in the community. Um, then the second work placement was a social services department in Milton Keynes, um, mm-hmm. where we were working with uh, abused children in contact with the sort of children and families courts and um, other kids caught up because they were in trouble with the law. Uh, Mm. And I met a guy there who'd uh, spent most of his life as an armed robber. Uh, And he'd uh, just a year before been released from uh, Grendon Prison, which is a unique prison in the UK, as you know, uh, set up along therapeutic or democratic therapeutic lines. Uh, and he was working there. He'd not been released long, and it was kind of part of his reintegration, if you like. Um, mm. And we, we struck up an unlikely friendship. Um, he was older than me, about 20 years older than me. And in some ways, mm-hmm. he became a bit of a father figure, but a father figure far removed from my own sort of sheltered upbringing. And again, I would begin right. to be exposed to totally different sides of of life, if you like, both listening to his stories of being in prison and committing crimes and his family background mm. and getting to know some of his children from different relationships. and All this was new to me. I was about mm. 20 years old and it was all a bit of a shock. Um, mm. But we, we, we became friends. We did a lot of work together, ran sports groups for these young people, went on camping trips with them, uh, counseled them, advised them, met with their families, all this kind of social work stuff. And I was actually much drawn towards social work, even though I'd set out to study psychology. I realized psychology wasn't really for me. I wanted to get my hands dirty. So, so right. this kind of stuff was great. And, and then when I finished that work placement, I had to seek another work placement. And, and he said to me, you should go and work at Grendon, where, where I did my bird, you know. So, hmm. so he recommended me to the head psychologist at Grendon which is a little bit bizarre in itself, a recommendation wow, from a yeah. former inmate. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've heard of that before. You know, and then I was accepted uh, to be uh, in the psychology department for like a four or five month period. Mm-hmm. And uh, weirdly, very, very strangely, I'm sure it wouldn't be allowed today, I lived in a house together with John, the ex-bank robber, ex-Grendon inmate, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. at the same time as I was an intern in the prison where he'd been released about a year before. Mm. He'd done a lot of long prison sentences, like seven years here and five years there. So he was a pretty hardcore uh, former criminal. Yeah. Um, and, th- and there I was, exposed to so therapeutic groups with uh, murderers and thieves and rapists and all sorts of uh, different kinds of people, just mm-hmm. lapping those stories up and, and basically just bearing witness and being there and absorbing stuff. And then every evening I would go home and, and John, he knew these people and he knew the place right. and he knew the staff. Mm. So I yeah. was exposed to sort of a double version of the prison world, if you like. Mm. Uh, and, and looking back now, as I, I, I typically call myself a prison ethnographer, 
I mean, that that is really where I learned ethnography, the, the idea yeah. of uh, trying to understand the prison sort of from within and, and from below, you know, getting to grips with everyday life and how it's experienced and being attentive to, to, to the meanings that people attribute to, to their lives. Uh, and in many senses... Yeah, so you had your own experience of, of it yourself being, you know, speaking to the people and then almost having some kind of experienced supervisor at home where you can verify your thoughts with and instruct you in a way. Live mentoring, in a sense. Yeah. An apprenticeship. Yeah. Uh, and, and apprenticeship has, has come to mean a lot to me also in, in sort of the way I like to think about pedagogy. And, and I, I guess I would also kind of blame that on, on this experience as well. Mm. I mean, I, I wasn't particularly scholarly at this point. I wasn't particularly reflexive. I had really no idea what was going on. I was often mm. thrown out, thrown into deep water, uh, came into situations that no young 21-year-old aspiring psychologist should really let himself be thrown into. But I just yeah. kind of went with it. And I'm sure that, that yeah. allowed me to become the kind of person who can maneuver and navigate the the, the strangest places, uh, whether it's mm. the, the poor urban neighborhood in Sierra Leone or the Philippine prison or the Sierra Leonean prison or whatever. I mean, I learned lessons mm. there that have, have really lived with me. Mm. Yeah. And taking what you've said there and thinking about your work that I've read, it seems that you take a very close narrative view to the, to the real world, the realities of the prison. Would you say that's a theme that runs throughout your work? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I can't give John the credit for for everything, but he was a formative influence, let's say, and we stayed in yeah. touch. We're still in touch, uh, not so regularly these days, but still in touch. And it, no, I, sorry, I, I guess I just meant that um, you know your approach to your work now seems very similar, or at least uh, imbued with that kind of quality, where you will be reflective on, on what you've seen, but um, you know, letting letting the uh, really valuing the experience of the people that are in that context and allowing them to speak through you in that way. Yeah, I mean, the way we've written about it, at least, is, is we try to understand the prison in its own terms for what it mm. is as a set of social practices or, or, or whatever set of dynamics. Uh, mm. So this idea of, you know, making sense of imprisonment from the perspective of the occupants of the prison and there, I mean, mm. both prisoners and prison staff. In fact, a lot of my work yeah. is, is focused on staff because, at least in the human rights kind of community, they, they were more likely to be demonized than uh, yeah. attempted to be understood. And, and for me, that was a, a problem. I, I felt we needed to also understand the logics and dynamics of perpetration if we really wanted to understand how we might change mm. them. So, so that's been yeah. core as well. Yeah. And did you ever sort of uh, contemplate other approaches? I mean, you've already mentioned ethnography as um, sort of your, your central methodology. When you did move from on from this work, and I'm sure you're going to tell us what happened in between your apprenticeship at, at Grendon before your other work, but did you did you consider using other methods? And what's what drew you specifically to then become a prison ethnographer? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I didn't totally abandon psychology, mm -hmm. but when I finished my degree, I didn't really want to become a psychologist anymore. Um, but I was um, 
I, w- I was still caught up in some sort of Christian networks at this time, but but a little bit of a sort of more lab- radical flavor. I was quite inspired okay. by uh, liberation theology, for example. I read quite widely uh, about this. And I, I used to go to a, a slightly radical Christian music festival where they had lots of seminars mm-hmm. and stuff. I, I, I met a guy there who worked at a small Christian institute in Toronto where they ran a master's course called Worldview Studies. So I ended up running off to Toronto for, for a year, which is uh, where I sort of learned to be a scholar, if you like, or, or discovered a fascination mm. with ideas. Um, yeah. the, the courses offered there were a mixture of cultural studies, biblical studies, philosophical theology. Uh, I learned from other students who were more purist philosophers or studying philosophy. I learned to read philosophy as if it was poetry, just to sort of let it wash over me. And and that mm. exposure to a sort of academic environment was, was what set me out on an academic path. But there was nothing really about methodology there, um, mm, yeah. in any sense yeah. at all. It was only much, much later when I ended up at Dignity uh, as a student and got exposed to anthropologists studying violence that, that the idea of uh, fieldwork as, as a data collection and analytical methodology uh, was, was something that I, I picked up on. So that, that came very yeah. late, actually. Yeah. And were there any particular um, anthropologists that were formative in, in, your, in your work at that point? Um, no, not really at that point. I was such a novice. But it, it was... Yeah. I, I, just jumping a little bit after I was in Canada and, and uh, I, I moved to Denmark with my partner Lotte, mm. I was aged around 22 or 23. I spent a year there uh, working in a kindergarten and trying to learn Danish. And then I ran, mm-hmm. ran back to London where I worked for a while for the probation service, actually. I lived in London, but I worked in High Wycombe uh, mm-hmm. at a probation centre uh, running alternative to custody programmes and writing social inquiry reports and doing anger management. Uh, right. So back to the sort of social work type thing. I did mm. that for about a year. So again, criminal justice is hovering in the background all of a sudden, not philosophical yeah, yeah. theology anymore. Um, and much closer to the front line rather than yeah, def- in the books. definitely back yeah. to the front line. But I, I yeah. got a bit tired of the probation service. It, it was at a time when probation officers were becoming less oriented to people's welfare and more oriented to sort of controlling people's behavior. And that didn't Mm. really appeal to me. So I came back to Denmark, moved to Copenhagen, worked for a while in a methadone clinic, uh, worked for a while as a postal worker, delivering the mail, uh, still struggling to learn the language. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then my partner suggested I go back to university. So I took a master's in psychology, uh, which Mm -hmm. is the way I ended up at Dignity. Uh, I I was obliged to do an internship. I was looking around at Denmark and thinking, what kind of internship could I do here that would be interesting? It's like Mm. 30 years ago and 25 years ago. Uh, Mm. Denmark's a very safe place compared to... It didn't seem to have the problems that I was used to dealing with as a sort of social worker. So Mm. all the work placements looked a bit boring, to be honest. But I saw this uh, institution (laughs) called the uh, Rehabilitation and Research Centre for Torture Victims which is the former yeah. name of Dignity. And that looks kind of hardcore enough to appeal to me. So right. uh, I, I applied for an internship there and was accepted and, and spent a, a few months uh, in the, the clinic 
Uh, Dignity began as a a clinic for tortured and traumatized refugees who have asylum in Denmark. And then it's grown into a sort of human rights NGO, development NGO, and a uh, research institute. But the clinic is Mm -hmm. still there as the backbone of the center. But most of our funding comes from development aid. So at that time, they were also establishing a research department. And we were just a handful of people. I was associated with the research department as a as a master's student. Mm. Uh, wrote my thesis on memory and narrative um, community healing, nothing to do with prisons. And then mm. uh, a colleague in the department suggested I apply for funding for a PhD uh, and asked me if I wanted to study prisons and human rights or community rehabilitation. I had a long list of projects and list of prison projects was longer than the list of community projects. So I said, ah, prison. So we mm-hmm. came up with this idea, study prison, prisons in Nigeria and human rights. Mm-hmm. So I developed a proposal over a few months. And, and I, I don't know how it came about, really. It, it was just implicit. It was expected that this PhD would involve me going to Nigeria. Mm. And uh, so off I went once I got the funding. Which to, mm. today to me seems a bit absurd, to be honest. I had never stepped foot in Africa ever. Right. Um, I moved to a town called Jos in central Nigeria, where like a few months before, a thousand people had been killed in sort of politically motivated violence. Mm. Uh, and there I was, this uh, not quite so sheltered young adult, uh, trying to maneuver and navigate and trying to get into prisons. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so did I consider other methods? Not really, but I wouldn't even say I made a very deliberate choice to, to pursue ethnography. I was yeah. just thrown out there. Yeah, and I want to ask you about your approach to justice and human rights, which I know is a lot of what you have written about in your academic work. And when you went to Nigeria for the first time, did you go with a very different view on what reform meant compared to where you are now because I know I mean I ask that because I know that you question a lot of the mainstream or traditional methods for penal reform or torture reduction at the moment so I just wonder what kind of journey you went through from that first moment in Nigeria yeah no absolutely I mean I I have quite a long list of sources of inspiration and mm. many of them are sort of critically minded scholars who are sort of in, in some ways at the, the, um, operate at the interface between the academy and activism. Um, mm. And I, I think, yeah, I was definitely critically minded also to, to, to psychology. And my PhD was actually within the psychology department. Um, mm. But sort of, theoretical psychology that would problematize the idea of you know uh, people's problems being a case of individual pathology look much more to a kind of societal psychology or even a liberation psychology um, mm. so it was critical social science that I was reading that I was inspired by um, so so I guess that was it was kind of inbuilt in the design of the the project yeah um, I I guess even the idea of somebody working in a human rights NGO going to spend time learning about prison staff was a little bit edgy in itself, if mm. that's the right word. I mean, 
Okay. Uh, the, 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 the sort of standard discourse would be about victims, and we need to understand victims and the terrible things that they they suffer, and, and then we can we can help them. So, so yeah. even my point of departure, and and I guess maybe I'm I'm using my later analysis to make sense of my earlier question here, perhaps. Mm. But I, I became interested, at least, in in the way human rights were taken up by prison staff. Yeah. And why they didn't necessarily have the effects that those sort of initiating training programs hoped for from mm. them. Um, and that's what my PhD ended up being about. Um, yeah. But, but I, I just went with a very naive sort of question, like, how do we change places that we don't know anything about? I think I learned that very early in designing the PhD proposal, that there was no academic social scientific literature on these places called African prisons, or Nigerian prisons. There, there was nothing mm. on which to seriously base a, a meaningful intervention which to mm. me suggested that our interventions were based on some kind of assumptions. Or they Where were, you could copy and paste from yeah, the Western cultures. Yeah, in, in a sense, or, 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 or not much thought had gone into trying to sort of tweak them to local realities because mm. people sort of designing them didn't know much about the local realities. Or, or what they yeah. knew. They, of course, they knew a lot about bad stuff that was going on. I'm not denying that bad stuff was going on. They were approaching it from a, a normative, uh, normatively driven uh, entry point, where I was mm. I was trying to give them some sort of. I wanted to, my ambition was to give them some some background or some some knowledge on which they could sort of better. What's the word? Better direct their intervention. I mean, the example I I often use is. Uh, I I spent some days witnessing or observing a, a training session. Um, it was one of these classic kind of train-the-trainer type things. It was compressed into yeah. very few days. And and at the end of the training, they, they sort of said to these middle manager or mid-ranking prison officers, uh, now I want you to go back to your home prisons and, and tell them all about it. Mm -hmm. What I learned from my PhD through watching parade grounds, through living in the barracks, through hanging out with recruits for, for days on end, it was the, the most important thing they learned in the six-month residential training was their position in the hierarchy. And, hmm. and if if they were sort of low in the hierarchy, then they had no voice. So the idea of yeah. telling people to go and sort of spread the word to their seniors was was never going to work. Yeah, um, it was almost absurd in a sense. Um, so, so that that was an, an early realization. Of, um, and kind of that was how I was turning the analysis back on organisations like my own and, and others who uh, typically would would have uh, done that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So I know that at one point when you were working in Nigeria, your one of your informants that you spoke to a lot was the assistant to someone who used to be a hangman in the eighties. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. This was the guy I, I chose to call him Torhila, or he chose to call himself mm -hmm. Torhila in my written work. Um, yeah, and I lived with him actually. I, I shared uh, his his uh, his I don't know what to call it his home in the uh, right. prison officer quarters, the barracks, which was um, within the grounds of the prison training school where all these hundreds and hundreds mm. of recruits were were living, and just across the road mm. from uh, a, a prison. 
So I, I spent some some time, some weeks uh, living there and trying to work out what, what it was like to live as a, as a prison officer. But yeah, then it turned out that in the 80s he'd been uh, the assistant to the hangman. Wow. I was a bit surprised by that. He was, like, yeah, he was more like my drinking buddy by that time. Yeah. Well, so again, it's that history repeating itself. You've, you've found yourself in very close relationship with somebody who was embedded in a system that you're then studying at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Sl slowly getting to know him and observing the sort of yeah. scandals that arose in the training school that he was uh, sort of implicated in. And he was sent to another prison as punishment. And I was able to visit him at the other prison. Um, mm. So, uh, yeah, the, the ethnographic methodology sort of follow people around. Uh, mm. It's very opportunistic often. So while you were in Nigeria, you were actually living in the barracks. What, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, in a sense, another example of being sort of a, 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 an outsider, slowly struggling to become an insider, having to navigate, having to make sense, having to absorb stuff. Mm. Right. It happened a little bit by chance, actually. Maybe this links back okay. to your methodology question, because yeah. I, I was studying. I started by studying the training that prison officers were subject to, and uh, mm. I'd, I'd been at this, the, the prison staff college, and I'd interviewed some people just beginning their uh, residential training, and my plan was to go back and talk to them like three months later. But when I went back, there'd, there'd been some trouble in the city and they'd all been sent home to their hometowns so I couldn't do sort of the classic follow-up interview study so my, right. my method was screwed yeah. I didn't really know what <laughs> to do but then I went back to the training school and I ran into this guy uh, that I'd met once before and I was just chatting to him about my frustrations and then I, I always knew I sort of wanted to live in the barracks but I, I just I, I said so maybe I could stay with you and, yeah. and he said okay I thought there'd be so much red tape and bureaucracy, but he basically yeah, said, yeah. yeah, just move in. And uh, so I think I went home to my own hometown. And then I came back a few days later with a camp bed and I put it up in his parlor. And, and I stayed there and I became part of the family, uh, hung out, uh, watching, you know, barrack life. I think hmm. if, if I, I didn't do much, I just sat around. Because yeah. that's what he did, uh, you know, and I would yeah. watch people come in and go in. And I, and I guess it was an early version of what, in, in methodology articles, I, I've later called watching life unfold. Hmm. You never know what to expect, but then something interesting happens and you get to write about it. I mean, yeah. I, I sat writing the whole time I was in the barracks and... Hmm. When I wasn't learning how to assemble a, a rifle, or when I wasn't out on the early morning <laughs> run with these three hundred trainees and yeah. things like this. Wow, yeah. And there's always this discussion about the value of somebody from outside a culture, either bringing fresh eyes to the context that that's being studied, or conversely, never really being able to fully understand the culture. And I know that scholars like David Nelkin have talked about the advantages and disadvantages of either doing work there, in inverted commas, doing work there virtually, or being there temporarily, or, or living there. So I wondered what you thought about that debate about whether an outsider 
brings value or can ever really understand the situation. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really buy into the idea that you have to be a, a drug user to study drug use or you have to be a prisoner mm. to understand prisons or a prison officer. Mm-hmm. But but I did want to get a feel for what the life was like with its constraints mm. and challenges. Yeah, I, I guess, again, taking something from anthropology, the, the, one of the purposes of sort of ethnographies is try to get to grips with what people take for granted in their own lives mm. uh, yeah. and and that becomes particularly visible when you're an outsider so you mm. get to uh, ask questions about things that to you seem absurd but other people just take for granted yeah definitely i mean i i'm thinking back to having always felt a bit of an outsider uh, going mm-hmm. back to my sheltered upbringing and my encounters with the with the bank robber, and never never quite feeling like I belong. In in the sense, has equipped me for for this strange task of of being the research to- tool of, of embodying the data collection mm. methodology. In a sense, um, yeah, and and of course, the, the, it's my field notes that end up being the data set, and and I, yeah. I, I would write quite personal uh, field notes. Uh, about a lot of my own uh, anxieties moving around, and also my own anxieties faced with the prison and being there and uh, being confronted with you know people crying for help and, and and then sometimes turning that on its head and saying okay if, if I feel uncomfortable mm. with all my privilege and uh, ability to leave and, and all this you know how much how must it feel to actually be sort of subject to this kind of penal power? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's so difficult, and I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned there, sort of feeling as an outsider, and then facilitating that the understanding. I think yeah, I think when people do feel like they don't necessarily fit in one category or another, that the differences stand out more, and you don't uh, you don't take things for granted as much. And I think that's a, it's interesting how you know I've been speaking to people taking a very personal approach or being able to reflect on their own positionality within a situation and and use that to an advantage rather than it being this subjective thing that creates a problem it's like acknowledging everybody it has their own position and that there's an advantage to that in in any given situation i mean i i think i I go in with with the the sort of background rationale that there is a reason why people behave as they do Hmm. Um, that there is a sort of productive logic behind it. Um, I'm reminded of an incident in the prison that I've also written about, actually, that, that caused me to write about um, what I called mundane violence. I guess this was my mm. early move towards the everyday rather than sort of the spectacular. I mean, I, I yeah. think if, if, if just your average person on the street hears about human rights, they think of something sort of some spectacular violation. If they hear about torture, mm. they, they they think of somebody hanging upside down in a dungeon or a sort of James Bond movie kind of yeah. set up. Um, and I, I just became aware of the sort of very everyday domestic kind of violence associated with bodies being controlled and disciplined and moved and forced to stand in particular ways. Uh, mm. Both for prisoners, also for staff. The, the whole thing about having to, to, to salute your superiors was 
a way of inculcating a, a particular form of behavior again inculcating this know thy place uh, mm. thing but I, I was watching the disciplinary hearings no sorry the reception uh, process in a prison mm. this prison just across from the barracks yeah um, and the, the, the prisoner was there standing in the middle with his no, no shoes on and hat left outside and and there was a prison officer standing right behind him, like so proximal, you know, literally breathing down his neck. Uh, and mm. he was not answering clearly enough for the person behind the big table to be satisfied. And all of a sudden, the, the guard that was stood right beside him slapped him twice around the ears, like a double slap on the ears, like really yeah. aggressively. Uh, I, was, I was quite shocked uh, personally, what's going on here. But I was also mm. shocked because he's supposed to know that he's not supposed to do that. Or he's supposed to know yeah. he's not supposed to do that when I am watching, mm. uh, and and it, he, he had not registered. So either this was just such an everyday, taken for granted part of prison practice that he didn't care yeah. that I was there uh, observing, um, or the the sort of expectations of his bosses that this is what he's meant to do uh, were more important to him than any qualms that I might think it was a, a yeah. dodgy kind of behaviour. So it just led me to realize how sort of ingrained and embedded and all these kind of things this this violence was um, yeah and how did that make you reflect on sort of the lo the larger changes in terms of improving torture reduction and human rights in prisons because if like you say if somebody who's been trained or should know this isn't you know quotes against the rules somehow and is still willing to do that in front of you What's what does it make you think in terms of genuine possibilities for change? In some ways, it, it makes me think the, the the task is much more difficult than we imagine. Mm. Um, and I say we because I also do want to make changes in in these places. I I do find yeah. these practices deeply problematic. By studying them, mm. I'm not in any way trying to excuse them. Um, but I think we need to also understand them for what they are. Um, and I think what, what happens in, in sort of the human rights universe is, is people jump too quickly to wanting the world to be different and they mm. miss out the sort of equations in between um, yeah. and, and assume that, you know, okay, we tell this guy that he's not supposed to do that and then he'll stop doing it or we send mm. him on a training course that will teach him about the, the, the rules around, you know, yeah. not abusing the prisoner and he'll, he'll stop or... We encourage him to be a better professional, not realizing that yeah. sort of professionalism. He thinks he's being professional, maybe. Yeah. Um, so it, it's these were the kind of tales that I I try to feed back to to my colleagues, but also other people beyond uh, my own place of work uh, through academic articles and and whatnot. To, to try to yeah, and we, you just mentioned one of those articles. Uh, you very kindly have forwarded me a couple of your forthcoming articles, and I think one of these particularly speaks to this point. And there's one that we're going to hear from in a minute, which is uh, prison reform and torture prevention under compromised circumstances. And I want to ask you a little bit about what those compromised circumstances are and what you mean by that. But it, there's a point in that that I read which kind of registered with me and kind of I think it's out of what you're saying there in that you're saying in in terms of developing a response to 
the idea of uh, reducing torture, that we need to go beyond the idea of torture as simply a product of an absence of the correct laws or culture. And I think, I think that really speaks to a lot of the way that people think about doing prison reform, is that well, if only we had the right uh, laws in place, we've followed the standards, then the culture would just automatically change. And do you, seem, you, you question that in the article? Yeah, and I, I guess I push back against what I've called a deficit-oriented approach to understanding prisons. Um, a deficit-oriented approach. Yeah, in, yeah. in the sense that some of the classic models of, of prison reform and torture prevention have, have been around uh, monitoring places of detention. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm all for the idea of scrutiny, and it makes a lot of sense that uh, people act differently if they know they're being watched and held to account. So, so yeah. that kind of makes sense. But I discovered at some point, and this was my ignorance kicking in, I discovered that when monitors uh, typically go to prisons, they, they don't monitor the prison as it is. They mm. are tasked with monitoring the degree to which the prison is compliant with human rights norms, yeah. which is a very different thing in actual fact. Uh, mm. and, and I'm not criticising that in, in itself. I'm just saying that it, it's a very particular practice to go to an institution and say, do you live up to this norm, this norm, this norm? That's what I mean by deficit. Yeah. So mostly when you go to a prison in West Africa, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, where I've spent a lot of time, they're, they're going to fail on so many accounts. Mm. Uh, and I'm always left asking myself, so where, you know, where does that leave us? Okay, we have diagnosed the problem. But the people mm. on the ground, the prison officers that you then tell, well, you don't have enough space for your prisoners or you don't let them out of their cells often enough, they know that rather well themselves. Yeah. Uh, they, again, this is why I can be more critical of, of myself and my own sort of uh, position within the human rights and development community than, than I can. They, they, they don't need me to tell them that their prisons are overcrowded. But the mm. dominant human rights reports often point that out. Uh, yeah. And, and in some ways it seems a little utopian, idealistic, or mm. even naive. So, so my work has been about trying to do something a little bit uh, different, I suppose, and to push back against that. Yeah, and uh, while there are lots of positives about you know, trying to find minimum standards to avoid torture and avoid things like overcrowding in prisons. I think what's interesting there is like who is defining what these norms are and are they norms for one place but not somewhere else? And again, I'm turning <laughs> turning back to your your words here and in that article you talk about, um, you know, the focus on the, the ordinary and you talk about who's ordinary and who's normal are we talking about? And so often when we're researching a space, we're not really talking about the ordinary for those people. We're talking about an ordinary or the norm for something that's been decided elsewhere. Uh, and uh, yeah, I thought that was really interesting in this in this article. Yeah, I mean, I'm inspired there by work by Tobias Kelly and uh, my colleague Stefan Jensen, who've also mm -hmm. written about the way it's sort of certain solutions to problems are in, in some ways simply lifted. I mean, things that designed and thought and probably would work quite well in, in Denmark, a good, strong, democratic welfare state set up where, you know, nobody's really afraid of the state, the state's on your side. Uh, mm -hmm. 
but why do we imagine that would work in a sort of politically volatile post-civil war, uh, radically poor uh, context? And my mm-hmm. my intuition or my experience uh, said that, that we are simply naive to expect that this will, will work. Um, yeah. Okay, so maybe this is a good time to hear that clip from this, the paper. So the paper, again, is uh, Prison Reform and Torture Prevention Under Compromised Circumstances. And it's quite a reflective piece, and uh, let's hope that's coming out soon, I believe. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah? <laughs> okay. This is an extract from an article written uh, for a conference on prison reform held in Haiti at the end of 2019. It's called Prison Reform and Torture Prevention Under Compromised Circumstances. Research conducted in and around prisons in the Global South presents a harsh, stark, troubling image of the circumstances confronting would-be reformers. Climates of misery, political contestation, secrecy, Varying degrees of deprivation, stuckness, exhaustion and foreboding are a poor match for the imaginary abstractions that often inform reform interventions. Such images are not always welcomed, since they disrupt, complicate and interfere with default ways of working. In this paper, I've argued that confronted by embedded, embodied historical practices of mundane, everyday violence and punishment, under conditions of poverty, socio-political volatility and conflict, Tried and tested modes of intervention cannot be expected to work as effectively as they are imagined to under conditions of liberal democratic peace and welfare. I have implied that while rights and health-based entry points to the prevention of torture and inhumane treatment, and prison reform more generally, plausibly make sense under certain optimal circumstances, when confronted by the compromised circumstances of many prison climates in developing countries, something else may be called for. What that something is remains an open question that calls for collective imagination. Looking ahead, it is incumbent on activist and researcher communities to work more effectively together using multiple entry points. It's necessary to examine more carefully the complex drivers as well as the consequences of abuse in sites of institutional confinement and beyond, taking seriously the inevitably compromised circumstances. Preemptive anticipatory interventions, targeting socio-economic conditions and inequalities, and identifying, visibilizing, and protecting imprisonable and torturable populations may be an innovative direction. And likewise, a focus on people themselves and the relationships that keep them torturable or imprisonable. In sum, a dynamic relational entry point to reform is desirable if entrenched practices and norms are to be transformed. Great, thank you for that. And so you talk about this relational approach. We involve those with lived experience in the discussion, including criminal justice actors. And you talk about, you give this example of how an officer in Sierra Leone said, I know human rights, but do you know about what those people have done? And so there's this kind of conditional culture around human rights and how they're not always conceived as belonging to everyone all of the time and that actually they're conditional. 
if, for example, if you've done something wrong, then the argument goes, you deserve all that wrong that comes to you. So I wondered if you wanted to reflect on, on these multiple understandings of human rights. Yeah, sure. So one of the, well, my colleague Stephen Jensen and I, we edited a book a few years ago called State Violence and Human Rights, where mm -hmm. each of the contributions was actually about the way local police or local prison officials received human rights, how they were at the yeah. sort of the sharp end of human rights. Yeah. Um, and, and how human rights were sort of appropriated uh, in, in different ways. Now, this, this police officer, second command at the police station, uh, he, 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 said he, he said he knew human rights, but then he went on to say, yeah, but you'd treat these people badly if you knew what I had to deal with. Uh, as if hmm. somehow his, his own understanding of his local context uh, legitimized trumping hmm. human rights. So, so he sort of yeah. he claimed to hold them, uh, and yet he also he had, he 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 held two contradictory opinions at the same time. And I think often yeah. many people do that. Um, mm -hmm. And and this is this is simply the, the sort of complex reality that uh, human rights interventions have to somehow get their heads around. Um, so, so when we came up from the cells, and there I was with, with this organization, Prison Watch, come up from the cells, and the monitor mm. starts confronting him with, with some of the complaints of the detainees, and he says, I know human rights, but you, you, you don't know what these people are like. So, so mm. he had an image mm. of a certain group within Sierra Leone society who, who basically he was saying they deserve to be treated badly. Mm. Um, and that for him was, was somehow... Um, um, he, he could hold both opinions without it seeming yeah. to worry him very much. Yeah. And and how do we deal with that? that that's then the challenge for the for the human rights community. Um, we cannot deal with that by simply simply moralizing at him and saying, you know, you were wrong. These these people mm. have dignity. Uh, yeah. And often they don't have much dignity. They are poor and they're in trouble with the law constantly, and they're, you know, they they don't look as though they sort of they don't invite to dignified treatment necessarily mm. this is sort of in his in his optic they're, they're what i call a, a torturable or imprisonable populations yeah it's so interesting and i'm, I'm gonna have to <laughs> resist mentioning my own work too much here but it's it's so linked to because i'm looking at brazil and how judges make their decisions and how there are multiple understandings of what human rights mean in those kind of contexts. And so I think it's really interesting in how we as an international group of prison reformers or people that are hoping to reduce human pain in, in some way work in a situation where we're so used to saying these are human rights and we kind of have an idea of what they are, but yet there are contexts that we're looking at. There are multiple understandings of it. And so the usual kind of training, like you mentioned, the training of trainers on the Nelson Mandela rules, for example, long-term, how sustainable is that kind of training when at the same time that officer will hold a completely different logic in his mind at the same time, which to him makes perfect sense, without then just sort of imposing a Western idea of what is right and wrong. 
in the situation. So <laughs> I guess I'm just trying to um, I'm trying to navigate that myself. So I'm wondering where you where you sit at the moment in in that kind of discussion. Um, yeah, where do I sit in that kind of? Dis- I mean, yeah. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a I'm a party to these kind of discussions. I mean, in a sense, my yeah. my what I'm trying to do in, in in the two pieces I've sent you is is maybe have the conversation w- with practitioners a little bit more overtly than I've done in the past. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of my published work has been about prisons and, and their logics, about mundane rather than spectacular violence, about mm. how to think about suffering as a quality of everyday life rather than as an aberration uh, to be fixed. Uh, whereas mm. Now, more recently, maybe this is, a, is a, as I get older, perhaps, uh, I'm starting to think, so, so, so how can I be a little bit more utilitarian about this how, how can I put my own research work to, to, to work if you like um, mm. so, so where am I in the conversation I guess I, I'm uh, I, I'm there in inviting the practitioners to dance is that a good metaphor well that's very poetic I, I like the sound of that what kind of <laughs> can you tell us a bit more about that dance I think early in my my research career, I, I had a tendency to be a bit sort of confrontational and critical, and imply mm. that uh, practitioners and interventionists sort of didn't know what they were talking about. Whereas, of course, mm. they have their own rationale, their own yeah. embedded uh, reasons for acting as they re- as, as they do, and often they mm. are very aware of all the sort of drawbacks and limitations of what they do, but but they they, yeah. they can't see any other alternative. Um, mm. and, and I've often not given them any alternative because I've thought there ought to mm. be some kind of division of labour between what I as a researcher do and what they do. I've never felt qualified mm. to design a sort of an alternative uh, intervention form. Mm. Um, and, and today I'm, I'm sort of veering a little bit towards thinking I, I need to get more involved somehow. Uh, mm. It was a return to having to get my hands dirty. And I, I mean... And right. I, I, I mean, I guess it became clear when I talked about dignity that I am an academic working in an activist organization. So the opportunities are, in, in theory, there to to engage very closely with practice. I mean, mm. my, my office mates are involved in designing programs to, to prevent torture uh, and these kind of things. Um, mm-hmm. when, when it works best... The, then I think the, the 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 things I've learned over the years uh, they they get they are kicked into the discussion they they, they get to play a role um, yeah but it's uh, it's it's a long term kind of again that's a relational thing sometimes I think yeah. it's not so much the it's not the knowledge I've generated through my research or it's not the published it's not my research findings if you like but it's mm. who I have become through doing my research that mm. makes me sometimes at least have an authoritative voice in discussions. Okay, great. And I think that's a really good link actually to the second paper that we're going to talk about now, which is a, pr- a paper called Prison Ethnography in the Pursuit of Imponderable Knowledge. And that's a really interesting phrase that I want to ask you about as well. But I know that this was uh, a reflective piece and you're kind of looking back at some of the do's and don'ts about prison ethnography. And so can I ask you a bit about where this where this paper came from? Like what drew you to write this reflective piece? And um, yeah, are there any particular moments that you wanted to mention? 
it's it's been a really interesting process. It's basically been written over the last three months. This paper, which is a really fast uh, turnaround for a, for an mm-hmm. academic piece, um, I, I got an email from the editors um, saying that Deborah Drake, uh, a good colleague of mine from the Open University, had suggested that I could be a good person to write a a piece on prison ethnography. Uh, mm-hmm. and their their book is about human service ethnography. It'll come out next year sometime. Um, and I instantly said yes. Um, and I don't know if it's because of the Corona crisis and so many sort of online meetings. And I've been staring at my own sort of grey white beard in the screen and thinking, okay, it's it's time you shared a little bit from your sort of two decades of research. You you need to make yourself right. more available. And what they wanted me to do was was sort of write a paper about the do's and don'ts of prison ethnography. I call it mm-hmm. a hesitant how-to guide, and, and, <laughs> and that's sort of yeah. to speak to their agenda of wanting to do this do's and don'ts. Yeah. And, and yeah, it was also, a, 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 I, I capitalized on the fact that it was going to ha- happen quite fast by engaging a, 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 some of my colleagues, a couple of students and a, a, a lawyer colleague, and they have actually mm-hmm. shadowed my writing process. I don't know if you noticed, the there's a footnote that mentions this. So yeah. as I've been writing, really interesting. It, it was it was one of them. Uh, she, she one of the students, Hannah. She she said she wanted to learn about how to. She wanted to be a better writer. So I mm-hmm. thought, okay. So I, I I've increasingly learned that there are, there are some things that I do as a prison ethnographer that are not teachable, but they are right. learnable. Uh, mm-hmm. And you can only they, they can only be learned in a sense through apprenticeship. Uh, through sort of being uh, allowed to shadow the process. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try a mm. weird experiment here. I'm going to give them a chance to sort of read different versions of the paper and ask me not about its content, but about how I came to write it as I wrote it. And wow. I, I, yeah. in all the different versions, there were margin comments and things like this, and comments to self, and throw this out, and take this away. And then we had a, a mm. few online meetings where they, they asked me questions about so. So that great idea you had at the beginning, it turned out into a really crap idea. You threw it away. Why? <laughs> uh, and and yeah. I, I talk about sort of the things I was weighing up in my mind. As I, yeah. And, and, and it slowly became, partly because of that process, it became a much better paper. It, it was really, really interesting mm. as, as an exercise for me, the writer, to think explicitly yeah. about why I was structuring it as I was. To think about why, yeah. Um, and it worked well in the sense that it was meant to be a sort of how-to uh, guide on ethnography, so it became mm. also a how-to how exercise in uh, in how to write. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, let's hear the clip from it, and uh, then I've got some more questions about it. This second extract is uh, from a book chapter that is forthcoming on an edited volume on human service ethnography. It's edited by Katerina Jakobsen and uh, Jay Gubrium. It's called Prison Ethnography in the Pursuit of Imponderable Knowledge, a Hesitant How-To Guide. Ethnographic research of the type discussed in this chapter typically produces knowledge about the everyday, not the dramatic, about people and their perceptions, and about the world as it is, untrammeled by the baggage of how it ought to be. This kind of knowledge is crucial in exposing hidden and faulty assumptions, debunking myths and providing grounds for critique. But at the same time, it might be helpfully considered as a kind of wager, 
a more or less safe bet. Offering no guarantee, the knowledge produced through ethnography is open to contestation. It comes with few conditions. It doesn't impose itself except as a gift might. What is done with it and the degree to which it is taken up by others is often beyond the control of the ethnographer. Just as seeking access is an iterative process of boundary negotiation, the sharing of ethnographic knowledge implies gentle persuasion rather than arrogant insistence. Ethnographic research can helpfully be conceived of as a craft, as a form of hands-on engagement that reaches beyond immersion in the field during data collection into the world of practice. Closer connections between researchers and practitioners can help this endeavour, especially if knowledge and intervention projects are better integrated. This would involve researchers embodying the knowledge they produce, joining in the production of new forms of intervention and new projects, putting their skills, experience and ways of thinking at the disposal of others. Saying to others, come use me, let me help you, is likely more effective than insisting people read peer-reviewed articles drafted ostensibly with a different kind of audience in mind. One final remark. Knowledge that is persuasive confers authority on its producers that requires wisdom and discernment to carry appropriately. But the onus is also on recipients to pursue the opportunities that new knowledge opens up. The sharing of gifts of knowledge is an invitation that creates an imperative to imagine and think afresh about practices of intervention. Okay, great. Thanks for that second clip there. And again, so many thought-provoking points. And I know from reading the whole paper that you talk about how there's this tension between how prisons can be both mundane and monotonous, but then also dangerous and dramatic at the same time. And how, as a novice, you have to learn how to navigate both worlds and also how to negotiate boundaries. So have you written this article in a way as the paper you wish you'd read at the start of your career? Um, yeah, in a sense, I had novice researchers in mind, but I was also mm -hmm. aware that it was, it was for a book with a broader audience than just prison scholars. Mm -hmm. um, so I also went out of my way to sort of try to say why prisons are interesting to study, even if you're not interested in prisons. Um, mm. but, but I think, I mean, prison scholars are a little bit obsessed with methodology because the issue of access is so tricky. So, mm. and, and I have written quite a significant amount of stuff about access and or, or methodology. So this was not a new, uh, sort of diversion, but it was in mm -hmm. a sense, a bit of a summary of, of a whole bunch of different experiences. And definitely the, the first example I, I use where I talk about the importance of getting to know was, it hmm. was my own novice, uh, foolish, uh, early behaviour in Nigeria that I now yeah. look back critically on and use as a learning. I mean, we learn from our mistakes, and now I'm hmm. trying to let other people learn from my mistakes uh, yeah. 20 years later. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's really interesting how you, you know, you're talking about the experience of, of being in the prison as an ethnographer and the real reality of, of what you experienced in that point and sort of prison officers and other people there wondering why you're there and why you would find this interesting and why some things are out of bounds when others are open. And yeah, I mean, uh, it spoke to my experience as well when I've worked in, in different prisons. And, you know, I, I went, I once went to a prison in 
Malawi and there's there was a room that said punishment room on the outside and it was full it was full when I walked past it um of people it was a very small room and then by the time I walked out it it was then empty again and um when I asked about it sort of covertly just wondering what other rooms there were or cells there were it, it didn't get brought up at all and so the way you wrote about it um, really reminded me and really spoke to, to my experience of um, sort of the ambiguity of what what can be shown to a visitor and what can't be and um, yeah not being shown an idealized version of a prison. Yeah I mean we've, we've written a couple of pieces now based on a, a Tunisian fieldwork uh, I've done field work there together with Bethany Schmidt from the Prisons Research Centre and it's been great mm -hmm. to work with her over like two, almost three years now. Um, yeah. But we, we just, we, we've been in four different prisons in Tunisia and we just hung out for six days. And mm -hmm. in, uh, But we have learned an awful lot about the prison through these, what do I call, boundary negotiations, through discussions mm. with people at headquarters about uh, what we want to do listening to their responses to who we are and what we do tells us so much about the prison in itself it's almost like an yeah. indirect form of, of of research you don't even have yeah. to be in the prison to i mean we, we enjoy we didn't enjoy being in the prison but we was demanding and troubling in in many many ways i remember actually mm. on a few occasions having to dive straight into the shower as soon as i come out of the the, the prison and just felt somehow polluted and dirty and grimy mm. and exhausted. But but at the same time, it, it was so stimulating. We, we learned so much just from sort of hanging out in corridors and engaging with staff mm. and explaining why we were writing notes and writing notes when they insisted we wrote notes and, and things like this. So, yeah, that's another aspect of it. No, and I, yeah, I found that part really interesting. And, and just to quote, you from that part and it's interesting you've used a, a similar metaphor here we say um yeah, the interactions with the authorities were like a dance of concealment and revelation um i thought that was really interesting and again it spoke to the reality of what i've i've experienced yeah. and sort of no there's not a set rules and you know sometimes you want to push that boundary a little bit to get to a bit more truth, but you don't want to compromise your situation there. And um, equally, they may or may not want to show you the truth because they care about it too, but they don't know what they're allowed to show and what they're not. Mm. And yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting. Um, and you talk about how, you know, you, you're being there to understand and not to judge. And I think that's a really interesting point as well. I mean, Bethany and I, we, we published an article called Concealment and Revelation, which actually mm. sort of drew a comparison between the bureaucratic practices of imprisonment and the bureaucratic practice of ethnography, mm. um, showing that we, we don't reveal our hand uh, from the very beginning, and neither do they. Like, mm. we are as secretive at one level as the prison authorities are. And we share hmm. a particular version of ourselves as they share a particular version of themselves. Uh, yeah. And again, that comes back to the, the, the first example in the paper about getting to know. This is a process that takes time. You need to hmm. learn the dance steps. You need to find the rhythm if you want to generate sort of meaningful knowledge about what is actually going hmm. on in the place. Yeah. Yeah.
It's really interesting. And you even talk about the importance of doubt in that situation. Yeah, doubt. I love doubt. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's somehow rooted back to my uh, my religious upbringing again mm. and the importance mm. of certainty. In the sense, it yeah. is that point I was making at the very beginning about mm. uh, an aversion to certainty and absolutes, uh, and and a a celebration of doubt, if you like. Mm. Uh, I, I've worked with a, a colleague who's now in Edinburgh, a lot of book Sigal, uh, and her and I have. This is where the imponderable knowledge uh, concept has kind of developed, mm. but. I remember we wrote at one point about knowledge that is doubt-filled but not doubtful. Mm. Which is a very subtle distinction, I guess. But yeah, we, we, yeah. we try to, in our grappling with the prison, our encounters with staff, our encounters with inmates, there is so much that compromises us, that troubles us, that it, it just seems incumbent not to jump to conclusions uh, mm. and, and so that, that's why I, I call it a hesitant how-to guide because doubt and yeah. hesitation and not really being certain not really knowing or knowing yeah. but not knowing uh, yeah. it's it's yeah and is that is that what you mean when you say imponderable knowledge yeah in a sense there's a more complicated story to tell about that, which I don't tell in the article, and I'm probably not capable of telling, but draws on Wittgenstein and Stanley Cavell and Rina Das. Um, but my colleague Lotta would be much more qualified to talk about. But, right. but yeah, it's this idea that uh, yeah, we, we know, but we don't know. We're never entirely mm. certain. And, um, and the way I play with it in the paper is to talk about knowledge as... As, as a gift, almost uh, as a, a contestable gift. Uh, so mm. to go back to the discussion we were having before about the relationship between mm. researchers and, and practitioners, I come with what I think is knowledge that's been co-produced through my encounter in the field, with the field, with actors in the field, with other sometimes NGO partners in the field, and I sort mm. of say this is the way the world looks from where I'm looking. Uh, mm. can, can you use this for anything almost and sometimes they say yeah and sometimes they say nah not really um, mm. and, and thinking about the genesis of these two papers I know they were both invitational in some sense and so do you feel like there's a synergy between them is there something that binds the two papers together um, it's definitely not a coincidence I've kind of been writing them uh, roughly the same time. The, the one on compromised mm. circumstances has a much longer life, um, but it's also feeding in some into some strategy discussions we're having at Dignity um, in an interesting way. Mm. Um, so, so, so I, in a sense, I had those in mind as I was rewriting. But it was originally written for a, a reform, uh, a prison reform conference held in uh, Haiti mm -hmm. that featured human rights people, academics, representatives mm -hmm. from the police and the prison service. And, and I gave a, a keynote presentation and then developed that and turned it into this paper. Um, I know we talked about how um, 
this, this concept of compromised circumstances, it, it suddenly seemed very relevant uh, for Haiti. Uh, I had no idea about Haiti before I went there, but I basically ended up in lockdown because the, uh, the population were protesting for uh, against the government and we couldn't go out mm -hmm. and we were setting fire to tires outside and all this kind of stuff. So oh, wow. the, the notion of compromised circumstances uh, and the complex realities of prison services trying to reform themselves and, and human rights activists trying to reform prison services. Uh, mm. It was really quite quite vivid in that particular yeah. context. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. And it's made me actually, it's made me think of another part of your, the, the second paper where you're talking about, um, you talk about Schneider's 2020, her right to risk, mm. And um, just talking about different contexts and within the university or academic sphere, we can be quite risk averse going into those situations. But of course, they're so important to be researching. So I just wondered, well, I want to invite you to give your thoughts on, on that sort of risk averse situation and the right to risk. Yeah, I don't know if you know uh, Louisa Schneider's piece. It's a wonderful piece where she reflects very openly and honestly about a, an incident of sexual assault she was subjected to in in Sierra Leone, in one of the poor neighborhoods you know, close to where right. I also hung out, uh, and talks about how the university kind of dealt with that. Uh, and, and she kind of makes the argument that we need to be much more, that there must be a right to risk, otherwise we can never learn anything about these communities. And I suspect mm. that for me, that resonates partly because I've been in these same neighbourhoods and these same prisons that, from certain points of view, would be considered dangerous or risky. I, in Sierra Leone, did a lot of work with ex-combatants and would drive around to villages with them in my vehicle and uh, get, also get stuck in odd situations where, hmm. you know, People would probably have advised you're not supposed to do that, or you should stay away from those kind of things. But but that's where knowledge is generated. That's where you learn about the everyday lives of of people emerging from conflict and war, or people in conflict with the, the law enforcement authorities, whatever. Mm. Um, so, and and I guess for for me. It, it, it goes way back to, to these encounters I had with John, where I was in a lot of situations that I shouldn't have been in. So I was mm. I was prepared from a relative young age to to be able to navigate more or less safely, but it can always go wrong. Uh, and yes, that's where, that's where Louise's paper is so strong. Um, yeah, and it's difficult because just you know, just as a prison has a duty of care to the people within the prison, the university has a similar duty to keep people safe. But yeah, like you say, how do we push the boundaries of, of knowledge and make these unique contributions to knowledge without going into those kind of situations? It's, it's a really tricky thing to, to weigh up, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I increasingly become interested in this idea of boundary negotiations. Mm. And we wrote about it in the context of the Tunisian study, but it's all kinds of boundaries are at stake in, in this business. Mm. Um, it's sometimes at quite fundamental, almost philosophical levels, like the boundaries between right and wrong, good and evil. Uh, there's been some discussions in criminology, obviously, about uh, you know whose side are we on or whose side are we not on. 
uh, mm. notions of complicity have also been at stake in, in my work because um, uh, partly to do with uh, you know studying perpetration hanging out with mm. people who either are or uh, could be or still are uh, perpetrating acts of violence or mm. uh, carrying their authority in illegitimate fashion and so when when is one a by, 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 bystander when is one complicit um, Mm. And I, I grapple with those. It's part of the doubt-filledness of this as well. Yes, yeah. I never yeah. feel entirely certain of the ground on which I stand, um, mm. and that can be profoundly uncomfortable. Uh, certainly challenging yeah. at, at a personal level. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you definitely, definitely sound that from your papers, and now that you, in, very much in a reflective point, looking back at some of the things you've done and maybe how you can um, continue to have impact. And so in this last section, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about what you hope to achieve and, and how maybe. And, um, but, but before I get into that, were there any particular people or works that inspired you for, for these papers or for, for your work generally that, you, that, you, that stand out to you? If, if I'm in sort of reflexive mode and looking back at my whole sort of two-decade career as a as a prison scholar, there are there were some people very important in my early years. Scholars, mm -hmm. there's a, an anthropologist called uh, Jean Leif who studied learning uh, and social practice, and I met her a number of occasions, uh, and she was always extremely generous and encouraging, and she would talk and, and listen and be interested and. She was a very strong believer in slow science, uh, the idea mm. of ideas gestating and becoming something much later. And, uh, but mm. very, very kind, uh, now retired. A similar figure uh, within prison studies was Lorna Rhodes, who was very supportive mm -hmm. as we established what we call the Global, research, uh, Global Prisons Research Network, uh, mm -hmm. a network for uh, ethnographers looking at prisons in the Global South. And she was super encouraging. But even earlier than that, before I ran into them, uh, people like uh, Maeve McMahon and Joe Sim from the European Group for the Study of Deviance and Social Control, they, mm -hmm. they were people working like powerfully academically, but, but also with, a, with an activist slant, a critical, um, radical slant on, on imprisonment, mm. abolitionists, if you like. Um, but I've also been uh, privileged to, to co-author a whole bunch of stuff so, so people I've written with, uh, Liv Gabory and I, we wrote a book on uh, human rights in prison together with uh, some uh, Dignity uh, Partner organizations. Bethany Schmidt, I mentioned, mm. Sarah Armstrong, Thomas Martin, Stefan Jensen, Mahua Bandiapadi, uh, Julian Weigels, uh, Ahmed Jallo. These, these people have like really made a difference to, to, to both my way of thinking and writing and uh, and I guess doing development, doing human rights work. Mm. So, yeah, I guess that's that's sort of both a shout out to them, but also a, yeah. a, an encouragement to, to co-write. It's not very easy. The two papers mm. I sent you were solo pieces deliberately because they're, they're mine, you know. It's yeah. easier to talk about them in a sense than the, the co-written pieces. But, yeah. No, it's, it's so interesting. And... Um... Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, <laughs> it's a really difficult question because it's so open, I guess, but 
you know, you work you work on such large scale wide issues in terms of torture reduction and human rights. So what I'm wondering is, how do you measure your own impact in the world? Like, what what do you hope to achieve, and what does impact mean to you for you and your work as obviously one individual working in this huge area of uh, of reform? Yeah, it's so tricky to to pin it down. Huh? I mean, yeah, twenty years ago there was not much in the way of empirical studies about prisons beyond the West or prisons in the global South, um, and I, I kind of think some of my closest colleagues, Thomas Martin especially, and, and I, we've been a little bit at the fore- forefront of of that sort of sub niche in academia, which feels a mm. little bit about uh, a bit like success. There's a whole bunch of French scholars uh, also uh, working in this area that we've established some uh, connections with as well, which has been great. Um, but I've come to understand impact in a very, very modest way, uh, as, as, mm-hmm. as about being about planting seeds uh, mm. and, and making gifts available, uh, to go back mm. to the previous metaphor. But, but really, I, I don't expect change to happen very fast. I don't necessarily expect um, the human rights community even to sort of radically change its way of uh, working, but but I do hope that um, colleagues close to me uh, somehow pick up some of these ideas um, and and sort of orientate themselves a little bit more differently to the field. Um, mm. I, I guess I understand impacts as this, this relates to or is a lesson learned from accessing prisons you never access a prison once and for all even if you get your bureaucratic <laughs> piece of paper it's an iterative process yeah. you repeatedly have to get access I mean yeah. if you just if you, you, you go in the front gate but then you want to talk to a prisoner you meet another kind of set of obstacles and, and when you meet mm-hmm. the prisoner you also you know you have to build uh, develop a relationship with them as well and and that's all about planting seeds and doing relational mm. work um mm. I, I guess i come at most things these days through a relational lens so also my take on impact would be it's about establishing the right networks having the decent uh, communication channels um, making myself seem and sound credible or legitimate mm. um and, and and I think this is also an issue about proximity, closeness. Vina Das, anthropologist, she talks about nextness, which I think speaks to this a little bit. It's necessary to be fairly close to people and to have regular contact in order to, I don't know, allow the seeds to grow or feed the seeds. You have to repeat mm. yourself quite a lot. I'm also speaking to multiple audiences uh, with my work, I, said, I mean, I am fascinated by ideas. Um, mm. Some of my work is about developing concepts and way to think about uh, either prison or transformation, or sometimes even about the state. In our work on Myanmar, mm. we talk about or we deliberately use uh, prison as a prism on on other sort of societal transitional practices. Mm. Um, 
so yeah um yes multiple audiences what's what i was talking about there so, so, so sometimes yeah, well, it's the academy sometimes it's the human rights community sometimes it's the person in the office next door to me um, yeah sometimes it's it's novice ethnographers um well, I think that's a perfect time to ask you then about audience and who, you, who you'd like to get through to most. And I like to ask everybody, you know, if, if we were able to create a room where we could put around 50 people in and you had half an hour to talk to them, who would you be putting in that room and what kind of things would you be saying to them? It's easier to work out what I would be saying, I think, than it is to who they would be. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, but but it can be broadly different groups. I don't don't mean individuals, but just yeah, but you know, some it, people it want be, to specifically get through to the prime minister of X, or they want to get through to the it, policy it, director me, of Y. It, it it would be the next generation um, mm -hmm. of whoever. It would be the okay. the next generation of prison officials, or the next generation of uh, human rights or anti torture uh, professionals. Um, mm. I really see that also at work. The, the people that um, I, I long to see a sort of thirst for knowledge. It, it's it's the young ones that just are arriving and designing projects, and, and I, I really hope that I can sort of somehow encourage them to be hungry for knowledge, uh, mm. to inform themselves, and, and you know to to go out into the field when they get the opportunities. Um, to think yeah. through things, to struggle with some of the dilemmas that they face rather than sort of leaning too easily on the sort of established modes of doing things. Mm. Um, so I don't know if this is, this is a case of just being in the business for so long, but now I'm <laughs> looking for somebody to sort of take over. <laughs> um, but, but definitely the, the, the next generation. Andrew, it's been fascinating talking to you. I really appreciate you making the time to chat with me today. You spoke about so many different interesting things. If there are people who want to follow your work or get in touch with you somehow, is there a particular way you'd like them to do that? Um, well, I'll take a look at the Dignity webpage, um, mm -hmm. dignity.dk. We also have a special website for our Legacies of Detention in Myanmar project that is uh, easily Googleable. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I also Twitter now and again. Mm -hmm. um, but thanks so much for, for doing this. It's been a, a ple pre pleasure, privilege to, to uh, try to answer your questions. Tricky questions you ask sometimes. <laughs> well, thank you. The, the pleasure's mine. And yeah, thanks for coming on the pod today. All right. Cheers. Okay, really hope you enjoyed that show. If you did, please do me a favour and share it with somebody else who you think might also enjoy the podcast. And you can also hit subscribe and you'll never miss an episode and also help me out to see how many people are enjoying the podcast. So thanks for that and see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.